know you've been raised as a human being, you are not one of them. They can be a great people color when they wish to be. They only lack the light to show the way. For this reason, above all, their capacity for good, I have sent them you, my only son. And welcome to a brand new episode of Third Degree Burn. My name is Brian Hughes, and I'm here with my good friends, Kurt Greenfield. Say hi, Kurt. Hi. And John Hyatt. Hey. Hey, everybody. Good morning. And I think or afternoon or evening, whenever you're listening to this. <laughs> yeah. Or good afternoon, good evening, and good night. Oh, wait. that's Happy the- Memorial Day. Happy Memorial Day. I figured you were going to say that. And that's... <laughs> I mean, it's um, this is a weird Memorial Day weekend. Um, I had a niece graduate high school, and we did a, a one of those parades where everybody drove in front of the house and honked their horns and everything. Um, but you know, everybody's being so standoffish and all you know, due to the the coronavirus and just you know being careful as we are. Um, this is definitely one of the the odder Memorial Day weekends, as I understand it. The um, like Arlington Cemetery here in uh, Texas is uh, closed to the public, so you can't go. Even though they've gone and put out all the flags out there, we're not able to go Funny. and visit the site. Funny thing, I went to a graveyard here in my hometown or local town here uh, for a different purpose and drove through, and it was interesting to see. Once in a while, there would be a car that would drive through. But only one at a time, almost like it was planned that it doing you know, was was social distancing. It, but some people were going to to you know the graveyards and remembering their their fallen ones, their past ones. It was kind of interesting. Yeah, so that's that's the thing about Memorial Day. Um, while we're being happy remembering our freedoms, remember the the cost that it costs. Uh, Memorial Day is about remembering those in the military who died in service to freedom in our countries and things like that. So. Um, yeah, and yeah, remember our memorials. <laughs> Did you for guys that. know that that the uh, the day the holiday was originally known as something else? There was actually a different name for it years ago. What was that? Decoration Day, and to this day, my ninety-eight-year-old mother constantly refers to this weekend as Decoration Day because apparently oh, that's that's what her generation knew it as prior to it being renamed Memorial Day. So. Hmm. Very interesting. I didn't. I don't recall that I knew that. So that's a nice bit. Yeah, I don't recall bit that. Of news. My father, who's eighty-five and who likes to educate us at every turn, has never mentioned that. So I'm, I'm quite surprised. Ask him. I'm going to have to ask, ask him. About him. See that. if you can stump him. Ask him what holiday decoration day was, because when I was growing up, it produced great confusion in my head because I couldn't figure out how many holidays we had: Fourth of July, Christmas. 
Memorial Day, Labor Day, and Decoration Day. And I, I'm sure, I couldn't figure out where that one vanished. And I'm sure that he does know that and remembers it, you know, from you know, probably from his mother. But you know, or, or you know, what you know, they would have told him about his father. My grandfather died when my father was two years old. He contracted oh malaria when he was in World War One. He was a a Marine, um, and uh, he lied about his age and got in at fifteen. And uh, he contracted malaria, but he didn't die until he was 37. And my dad was two years old. But uh, you know, it, 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 my dad had always said that uh, he and I could go on a game show and we could master any quiz show that there was because my dad is full of all this incredible, useful information. And I have the rest in all the useless trivia that anybody could possibly <laughs> know. <laughs> but... Uh, be that as it may, uh, yes, it is um, Memorial Day weekend, and uh, we'll uh, try to get this out before that really hits. And we hope that everybody is is dealing with that in a, a good, sensible way, and that is, you know, keeping their distance and, and you know, maintaining the care. Uh, things are opening up, but that doesn't necessarily mean we should run out willy-nilly into the world. Um, be as careful as you feel the need to be, uh, at least, but be careful in respect to others, too. That being said, what are we covering today? Do you guys know? We are covering an else when or else worlds. Else worlds. Uh, uh, Superman Annual Six. It's actually Action just... Comics Annual Six. Oh, is it? A, uh... Yeah, Action oh, Comics Superman Annual Six. Oh, Superman in Action Comics. Yes. Okay, there we go. Now this this is one of those things that I I as I started looking at it, I realized you know just what a departure it was, and, and for so many reasons. Because, you know, as you all know, Superman, uh, John Byrne took over Superman in 1986, rebooting him and, you know, bringing Superman into the, the modern era, so to speak, getting away from the Flash Gordon sensibilities of Krypton and, and such. And he left at the uh, end of 1988 um, after doing Superman uh, issue 22 uh, and a couple other, you know, books. And he wouldn't return to DC for at least two years, and he would do the one-off here and there. He uh, inked a Superman an- part of a Superman annual and, and did a couple uh, small bits and pieces on other books. And then he turns out this action annual, which of course is an Elseworlds story um, in 1994. And I think it was the first full or larger than full story that he did for DC in a couple of years. Uh, so it was quite a surprise. And of course, uh, it has that beautiful Mike Mignola cover, if you like Mike Mignola art. I do. Um, it's very distinctive. Yes, very distinctive. And it, it's yeah. definitely evocative of that... Uh, I mean, of course, we're thinking about Memorial Day today, but it's more like a Fourth of July type story, isn't it? Very impressive. Well, <clears throat> a good choice. Yeah, good choice for the cover. Yeah, I, 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 a good choice for the cover. And, and again, like I said, the art is you know, Mike Minola in, in in full Mike Minola mode, <laughs> uh, and where he he penciled and inked the whole thing. And of course, Byrne, uh, in this particular book, penciled, inked, and even lettered it. Um, so I, I think it was one of those things where he just probably worked on it for a while at home. Um. And, and I, again, I don't know if it was uh, uh, something that, that could not find much information on this. 
uh, either on his website or from others. I did find a lot of reviews of it, and all of them were positive. But uh, what year did this come out? 1994, uh, July 1994 is when it hit the stands. Um, and you so know, the, just looking at just looking at the cover, mm-hmm. my first impression of this was, oh, the main character there is probably Superman. Is he a vampire? <laughs> that was that was my impression. Now I'm not sure if that was colored because last night I was looking at a, a vampire story briefly, but that was my first gut instinct as I looked at this, rather than you know the military and shredding the the, the flag of the, the the colonies. I I didn't catch that. Magnolia's I'm not saying his name right. Magnolia's Magnolia. artwork spoke to me and said vampire. Hmm. I don't know if you guys got that vibe at all. Well, I could I could see how you get that, uh, you know, based on this image with you know the the dead bodies of the revolutionaries there below, and him floating above it like that. I did I didn't think vampire. I was like, what is this? And mm-hmm. it wasn't until I actually flipped the cover and looked inside that I realized. I mean, because even though it says by John Burton there, I didn't realize that he had worked on it, and it was a complete and utter surprise at the time. Uh, to to see what you know what kind of story we're getting, so I devoured this one as soon as I uh, got home with it, uh, and I was you know quite pleased. Did you all get that off the stands, or did you have a, a later experience in reading it? Kirk, later for me, I uh, I wasn't really collecting books in the '90s, so uh, this kind of totally missed me, and uh, so I, I got it. Uh, just last week, <laughs> with the uh, the John the John Byrne om- uh, omnibus, DC Universe by John Byrne omnibus. Yeah, and, and I'll tell you guys right now, and I don't know if we mentioned this last week on the show, but uh, if you go to Amazon.com and you just buy the Kindle version of the the DC Universe by John Byrne, it's six dollars and ninety nine cents. That's what I got. I was and like, wow. You can read it with the free Kindle app on your PC or Mac or, or Android or iOS phone. So, uh, I mean, and that's a nice uh, – I've actually got the physical copy here, too, of that book, which sells for $40 hardback. Ooh. And uh, it's, of course, got the beautiful cover that is basically the one, one of the covers for Legends, uh, or at least the artwork that came from that. But uh, it doesn't actually have legends on the inside. But it's a collection of uh, the various burned works at DC. Some of, you know, just uh, the little bit of Superman from uh, this story and then the origin of Superman. But it's also got uh, Teen Titans, Doom Patrol, uh, Batman 3D issues printed in here in just black and white without the 3D effect. Uh, Ganthet's Tale of the Green Lantern story. And uh, there was a Batman uh, series. It's the one that went went along with the animated Batman animated series. I forget what they call that. Um, but it's uh, got quite a bit of good burn art in there. Uh, this is again, if you buy the Kindle version, that's a steal, at twice the price. Mm-hmm. But that's just my opinion. I could be wrong. You know, I'm flipping through this on Kindle even as we speak. And there are parts of this that look vaguely familiar. Then there are other parts that it's like, I don't think I've seen this before. I, boy, if I'd seen this on the, the spinner rack or on, on the shelf for the comic book shop, I would probably have picked it up had I known that Byrne was in it. 
and I just don't know. Hmm. Yeah, well, I, to me, this was a surprise. It was a treat. Um, I mean, it, it was something to be devoured uh, yeah. when, when it came out, and um, it did not disappoint. <clears throat> So uh, what I guess I'll do is I'll go ahead and give the uh, the editorial information here, and then maybe we'll take a uh, quick uh, bio break before we actually get into the book, or we'll take the break after I do the synopsis. How's that sound? Okay. That's good. Okay, good. Now, again, this is Actual Comics Annual, number six. Uh, it was... Published in July, uh, actually released on the stands in July 1994, cover date 1994. The cover price for this was uh, $2.95, and it was a full 64-page annual uh, edited by Mike Carlin. Now, the story in here that we're going to read, Legacy, is a 40-page story, so it's larger than your actual comic book tale normally is. Normal tale is 22 pages. Um Things like the Incredible Hulk angle we saw was 30 pages. This is a 40-page story, so a little longer than normal. Uh, it's a post-crisis story, but it doesn't feature the actual Superman that we all know and love. Um, like I said, writer, artist, and letterer is John Byrne. Colorist is Glenn Mitt Whitmore. Inc. Uh, editor is Mike Carlin. And uh, you can find this, of course, we just talked about the... Uh, DC Universe by John Byrne, but it's also been reprinted in the Superman, Batman, Alternate Histories trade paperback. Uh, at the same time that this was published, the only other thing that came out that month, and that was July 1994, was Babe, issue number one. And Babe was that Dark Horse series that Byrne had worked on. Uh, the issue was called It Was a Dark and Stormy Night. And I'll tell you guys, I've never read Babe. Had either of you? Yes, no. I bought it off the rack. I know I got that one. But, I mean, what kind of... I, I, again, I, I I mean, I've bought every issue of it. I've got them in my collection, but I've never read them. And I don't know what it is. It's it's kind of... It's like... not. And I'm not being misogynist in this. It's just a, a vicarious thing kind of thing. When I play video games with my son, say like we're doing a fighting game like Mortal Kombat or Tekken, I won't play the female characters. I play male characters because I'm like, you know, if I'm going to, you know, do something, I do it as the male. Um, She-Hulk was one of those books that I read because I liked the way it was done. It was funny. It was all that. I had no frame of reference on what Babe was going to be, so I really didn't have much of an interest in it. And, right. um, you know, I collected it with the intention of reading it sometime, and I just never got around to it. Well, we know what we're doing next week. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man, okay, well, I guess I set myself up for that one. So, uh, let me go ahead and give the uh, synopsis here uh, that I wrote myself because I didn't like any of the things I read out there. And before I do this, let me clear my throat and uh, open my Mountain Dew here, my vice. Me, 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 you, you, you. Okay, <laughs> here we go. The story opens on the destructive explosion of the planet Krypton. A spaceship just escapes in time to avoid fiery green death. This is not the Krypton we know, and it is not baby Kal-El in the spaceship. Gar-El, a fully grown Kryptonian, is the sole occupant of the spaceship. The lone ship still follows a course for Earth, but it is Earth of 1768. 
On Earth at that time, a carriage carries Edward, Duke of Albion, and his young wife, both, with both, uh, both of whom are accosted by the road robber known as the Raven. When the Raven turns his attention to Edward's wife, he, Edward moves to defend her and is easily knocked away by the Raven. Before the Raven can turn his attention towards Edward's wife, though, the spaceship carrying Garl comes crashing to Earth. As Garl steps out of his spaceship in his full spacesuit, the Raven tries to shoot him, labeling him a demon. The Kryptonian easily dispatches the Raven and introduces himself to Edward and wife as the Warlock Royal. Within the next year, Garl then reveals himself to England, but does, does not take the crown. He simply prefers, as he says, to maintain the order. We cut now to 1776. Over in Philadelphia, John Adams, Ben Franklin, and others that we consider the Founding Fathers discuss a rebellion and the Warlock Royal. But before any declarations are made, Garl shows up and takes all the Founding Fathers straight to the gallows in England. All are hanged until dead. The story then jumps 211 years later, where the great-great-grandson of the Warlock Royal, named Kal-El, is undergoing tutelage on the history of the Warlock Royal's conquest of the Earth, where now all the world is a crown colony under the threat of the Warlock Royal. Kal-El is discontent at the state of the world, feeling things should be different than they are, as there's been little scientific development since Garel took over. Garel's lesson is intrigued. I'm sorry. Kalal's lesson is interrupted, as one of his associates informs him that the Warlock Royal has ordered a raid on the Daily Planet. The editor of the Planet, Perry White, has been printing what the Royal calls sedition. The printing presses are destroyed, and Perry is struck by the butt of a rifle. But a lady in red, looking very much like our Lois Lane, steps in to calm Kalal's friend before he hurts Perry anymore. The friend, the Lord of Salisbury. Gives Laura some attitude. She returns with a knee to the groin. Kal-El steps in and prevents Lois from being arrested, or worse. Cal's friend orders Perry to the stocks to receive 40 licks of the cat. Perry dies under the whip, and Lois punches Kal-El, calling him a monster. Kal-El then goes to visit his great-great-grandfather, who is aged, but is still as powerful as ever. Kal-El asks the royal about the consequences of this order and the loss of freedom. Garl only reminds Kalal that the history of the Kryptonian bloodline is diluted through breeding with Earth women, so much so that Kalal himself has no Kryptonian power at all, and that he should not allow his humanity to be his undoing. We jump ahead a year later as Kalal goes to a pub looking for a man called L. He is quickly told that he has come to the wrong place. As he leaves into the night, he is taken by several men. He's tied up and questioned by the same woman who punched him the year before. Kal-El tells her that El is the leader of the new rebellion and that Kal-El is unhappy with the Warlock Royal's rule, that he sees a different world that should be there, and that El could help him find the way. It is here that we're told that Kal-El's father, Jor-El, was, was outspoken against the Royal and speaking out cost him his own life. Kal-El wants to join the rebellion and is willing to risk his life for it. Lois asks for proof of his sincerity. Kal-El takes her to the vault that holds within it a piece of kryptonite. He opens the vault by speaking the word open in kryptonese. Inside the vault is a large leg case. Lois makes Kal-El open it, proving his willingness to die for the cause. But his bloodline is so diluted that he's not hurt at all by the kryptonite's radiation. It's at this point that Lois reveals herself to be the mysterious L. <laughs> 
No, it wasn't Lex Luthor. Hmm. Next, mm-hmm. next we see Kal-El has gone to the royal palace to confront his great-great-grandfather. Garel allows Kal-El to make his case, and Kal pleads for the word for a world of promise and liberty instead of a dark world without life, much like Krypton was before it exploded. Kal-El does not get to finish his plea, though, as a guard shoots him through the window. Guards storm into the chamber, but Garel fries him in a blast of heat vision. Kal-El dies. Only then is it revealed that he had the kryptonite with him. Only then does Garel truly understand his folly on Earth. He takes Kal-El and sends his body into the sun. Garel then leaves Earth behind to search the realms of space for some small hope of greater happiness. As word gets out that the Sovereign has left the Earth, Lois and the others move to pick up the pieces of liberty and to create a future worthy of the brave young man who brought it to them with his life. Who brought it for them with his life. The end. Well, That was a very good synopsis. <laughs> thank yeah. you. Yeah, I actually wrote that last night in a fit of... Uh, I don't, I don't know what you call it. I couldn't have any more creativity, any more Coca Cola or or Mountain Dew. I just had to fight through because I was tired. <laughs> oh, but uh, yeah, no, I really enjoyed the story. I enjoyed the, all the pieces of it and how they came together. I was surprised that they didn't bring in a Lex Luthor of some type into the story, and, and the L uh, MacGuffin. Uh, was yeah. was it was definitely you know that that was put there to lead you into that uh, that direction, and you kind of expected to see the others. Now, as I re as I read the the, the write ups on this, I know that uh, there's a cameo in there somewhere of Jimmy Olsen, but I didn't notice him in any of my reads myself. Probably some I didn't notice him either. <laughs> yeah, probably some red haired guy in there somewhere that we'll see as we go through it, but yeah. um, but uh, I I didn't notice him directly. Uh, in any of the pieces that I saw, so we'll we'll see that when we go through it. But um, I, you know I, who else isn't? You know who else isn't? Um, didn't make a cameo. Who's that? Batman. No Batman. This is true. Unless I thought it, the Raven was supposed to be a veiled reference to him. Oh, okay. I don't know. I think the Raven was somebody that had already existed in the lore, but I haven't found anything on him. So uh, that's. There you go. Okay, that could have been it. Yeah, That's I mean, good point, if, Kurt. yeah. If uh, if anybody is aware of, of of the Raven, please write in and let us know. Um, you can write, you know, of course, respond on Facebook too, because that that's one of those things that um, I, I was I was really curious about, but I really had a hard time finding any information uh, on this story beyond the same thing that I found on all the regular pages, whether it was Wikipedia or the various wikis. Um, and, and the reviews. There wasn't uh, a whole lot of stuff around it. And even searching Burns' website, I don't see any place where he actually talks about it. And, you know, that's unusual. I mean, uh, I see where it's mentioned when they're talking about this particular omnibus and, and whatnot, but it, it's just hard to find anything about it. But it's a good story, a very good story for a Fourth of July or Memorial Day. Um and it, you know, definitely uh, was one of those great Elseworld tales that we like to see. I mean, so many of the mm-hmm. the early Elseworld tales were really, really interesting, and and you know had a lot of things. Of course, we look at the um, generation stories as kind of Elseworlds. I don't know that Byrne actually thinks of them as Elseworlds, or if he thinks of them as something else. But uh, yeah, I mean, those of course were some of the the the, the pure greatness of that kind of genre <laughs> in comic books. 
Indeed, yeah. It very it is a very good story. And uh the the opening page is uh was great because uh to me it just reminded me of all of the Krypton origin or the Superman origin story pages that I grew up with in the Bronze Age was always the ship leaving the exploding planet of Krypton uh, and very majestic and very powerful. It was I was like, wow, that's a great way to start the story. Mm-hmm. When when I was going through this last night, writing up the uh, the synopsis, I uh, I stopped on that page and I went quickly and pulled up the Man of Steel miniseries and looked at the explosion of Krypton. And of course, it, it is a, it's not an exact copy of it. There's a lot of uh, subtle and interesting differences between one and the other. And um, it actually makes me want to go back and review Man of Steel because it raised a lot of questions for me about Burns' intentions with the explosion of Krypton. The images are similar, but not exactly the same. Uh, different color schemes are used where one's kind of a black and white with the green highlights. The Krypton explosion in Man of Steel was pretty much green and black. And uh, it looks a bit more disruptive in that way. But yeah, I, I definitely he was he was using that as the frame of reference for what he did here. For sure. Mm. Though the one yeah, in uh, the comic, the, the one in Man of Steel wasn't a full page where this one is a beautiful full page explosion. You were going to say, I'm sorry. Oh, no, I was just, um, yeah, look, it's, I, I kind of just looked at some of the, you know, before, I looked at some of the other, whenever they would show the rocket leading or leaving the explosion, exploding Krypton, it was a very, always a very similar image. So I like that he connected us through that, that similar image. Like, there's not much to do. It's a exploding planet and a ship leaving. But yeah, but the uh, technique you know. of how he did it. Um, if I mean, you look at the Man of Steel. That was simply pencil and ink. Uh, you know, doing that explosion. This explosion here uh, looks a lot like the the creation images from Ganthet's tale. And in that one, of course, he used a trick with uh, paper towels. Uh, and ink to uh, make that imagery. If you're looking at the Kindle version of this and you go to the previous tale, which is Ganthet's tale, you'll mm-hmm. see a, a lot of that is done there. There's a two-page spread as uh, everything's coming together there or going apart. And uh, it's very similar imagery. But you can almost see a face in that explosion. Yeah, I, but let's, yeah. let's hold off on, on jumping into that as uh, you know, we, we start doing our page by page. There are things I will say that I, I, I took notice of in this. Um, the exposition that goes on this is not like your typical burn exposition. The, the typical story was all the action you know at the, the, for the first three quarters of the tale, and then at the very end you get just this crap ton of exposition, a data dump, you know, giving you what was actually going on in the story. Whereas in this one, it is a tale of prose. You know, it's 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 pure prose. As he sits there and gives the description of everything, it's it's I, he is as wordy in this book as Chris Claremont ever was, <laughs> and I find that unusual because he has taken definite steps to distance himself from that type of storytelling, but here he embraces it wholeheartedly, and it works well. 
it it really does doesn't it that um that series of boxes uh pacing the story the the death knell of krypton was really really good really good what do you think of it kirk i uh i like this splash page a great deal um but I'm I'm gonna save my comments on the rest of the story until we we get into it. Yeah. Here's here's one thing I found interesting. Here you have this giant planet of all of these scientific people, twenty million. Well, I mean that's and, New York City. Well, yeah, and I mean the thing is, uh, I don't know if there's ever been anything else that's quantified the 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 population of Krypton, but based no, on no, but. Uh, 20 million doesn't seem like a lot of people. Though. Right, right, I mean, exactly. In the scheme of things, you know, I mean, um, I mean, it is a lot of people, but I mean, when you think of a planet, and it's like, oh yeah, the deaths of 20 million souls. Uh, okay, unless the rest escaped into the Phantom Zone in this reality, I don't know. <laughs> well, I mean, again, this is the, the John Byrne realities that we're talking about. And when John Byrne took over and re-envisioned Krypton, the thing that he def- that that he demonstrated to everyone is that Krypton was a dying world anyway, that they had advanced so far and were so disconnected from their human sides that virtually had no soul, and huh. as such, you know that population would die in that type of situation. That that they would also, of course, limit the population to make sure that they would never exceed the, the, the need, what, what is provided by their environment. So yeah, that's makes, what I was thinking. It would make sense that uh, that there would only be you know, something like 20 million on there rather than billions. And I'm, and again, I, I've just killed the whole show, haven't I? <laughs> no, no, you're right. No, that makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. So, but I mean, and, and of course, you know, we get to see, you know, other a lot of subtle differences, but they're they're all cool ones as we go through the story. And I guess what we should go ahead and do is take a, our break right now, and then when we come back, we'll get right into that and go page by page and uh, talk about the things that we do notice. The things I'll say beforehand, though, in regards to the art, is that I can see the. The style of his art is very similar to how he was doing for, like, Next Men and other books at the time. Um, again, Babe was coming out at this time, and uh, you, you could definitely see that his artwork had changed significantly from what we saw in the late 80s at, at DC and, and at Marvel. Um, but, you know, he didn't have that, what I call, uh, pencil inking shorthand that he'd had on books like Alpha Flight and such. The artwork is definitely a little bit more intricate and uh, thinner lines. Uh, better inking than what he was doing prior. But um, I, I wouldn't say it was as fine as, say, the inking that he did on his Namor series or OMAC. A labor of love. Yeah, definitely a labor of love. You can tell that, that this is a story that really had his uh, juices flowing. Okay, so we'll be back in just a few after this promo break, uh, and we'll go further into action annual number six. Attention, attention all personnel. New from the Fire and Water Podcast Network, it's MASHCAST. 
Hosted by MASH mega fan Rob Kelly and a rotating cast of VIPs, MASHcast analyzes, episode by episode, the greatest television series of all time, MASH. Find MASHcast on fireandwaterpodcast.com. And we're back. Uh, Now, Kirk is going to be joining us in just a little bit, but we're going to go ahead and get into this issue. And before we even go into it, look at the cover. And I know we talked about it a little bit earlier, but I'm just trying to figure out certain things on here because it makes me wonder if there's other symbolism in here that that, uh, we might have missed. And if you look, you know, of course, on the cover, you've got what appears to be the Man of Steel in uh, Revolutionary Regalia with the, the Superman symbol on it, ripping the flag. But just to his right, there's a cloud swirl that almost looks like a, a dinosaur head or something. I don't it just with the, the, the pieces of the flag going across it. Do you see something else there in the symbolism? I don't know. I mean, again, it's not a dinosaur, but... Do you see him trying to do something else with the clouds and everything in the back, or the smoke, as it was mm-hmm. rising from all this? Or am I just, you know, looking for something that isn't there? I don't see anything in it. Just looks like design to me. Yeah, I, I, I don't see anything deeper in that. Okay, okay. Yeah. <laughs> and then the bodies, with the bodies having that green pallor to it, I guess that also kind of adds to that, you know, this might be a vampire or zombie kind of thing but uh boy that sure is that sure is cool yeah it is it is nice and it's definitely mignola mm-hmm. oh yeah there's no mistake in that except he's kind of got rob liefeld feet <laughs> you're right <laughs> i don't mean that as a knock rob if you're listening i, I you know but uh it, yeah it does kind of look like rob's feet the way Rob draws them. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, that first page, we've you know, qu- kind of talked about that a good bit. Now, when you first looked at this and you first saw this, did you notice that the rocket looked significantly different from the one that kal went in? Oh, yeah, definitely. And it looks like yeah. he, it looks like he's got room to maneuver in there, but uh, not so much when you actually see the cockpit. Yeah, but definitely very much more modernized and... Uh, much more attuned to what we would think today, as opposed to just like the the bullet shaped rocket, or the uh, what uh, when he did it uh, when he redid it, it was kind of like a little bulbous, kind of looked like a flower bulb or something to me when he when he sent it out uh, when John Byrne originally redid the origin in 1985. If I can, but. <clears throat> Yeah, because yeah, he was trying to make that rocket look like a gestation chamber, so that you get yeah. the idea that Kal-El was actually born on Earth. And I always liked that idea. Yeah, which would have automatically made him an American citizen since he was born in Kansas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. but yeah, 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 it was like yeah, it's very different. So yeah, this is. Um, much different, yeah. <laughs> and I, I really like on on the, the next page, the second panel, like you know, all of the the trajectory of all the the pieces of Krypton falling with them, and and how it's all green. So you definitely see it's irradiated. Yeah, and you can see in that bottom panel as he goes into what uh, any faster than light travel or whatever, 
that that trail seems to drag that kryptonite with it. Whereas yeah. in the original Man of Steel, a piece of kryptonite actually hit the one of the wings on the uh, the spaceship and uh, it stayed there. Whereas, whereas this is pulling it through some sort of slipstream. I do like the the burn tech in this, of course. Uh, the the space the space suit that he has, and this is something that's stuck in my mind right now because uh, this upcoming Wednesday, uh, if you're not aware, we're going to have our first uh, manned launch in the United States since 2011, going into space, and it's not a NASA rocket, but SpaceX. So Elon Musk's group is. Uh, taking two of our astronauts and sending them up to the International Space Station. First mm-hmm. time in nine years since the last wow. shuttle mission. So I actually uh, hadn't heard that. Yeah, this this coming Wednesday. So uh, keep an eye on that. That's a very important moment uh, for us. And the next step towards going to Mars. Well, we'll be going to the moon again first. But uh, yeah, we're there. they're wanting to uh, prep for Mars. In the next 10 years, I just, I don't know how they're going to do that, but... Really crazy. They created new spacesuits, too, and the new spacesuits are, are, are really cool-looking. Um, a lot more streamlined than the one that gar in than this one here. I do like the helmet he's got on this thing, but uh, you figure that would got to be really heavy on anybody. I do like mm-hmm. this almost X-ray vision look of gar face at the on the, the very first uh, uh, panel. You can uh, yeah, that see is, the outlines that is pretty in his face cool. and, and such. Yeah. I like the, the way he's outracing the, the kryptonite radiation. And you can almost see the tension on him. It's like it's affecting him. And he's glad to be beating it. Hmm. Very good, de- good details on that. Yes. But of course, going to the next page. Hey, Kirk, you're back. Yeah, I love that, uh, that space uniform, that uh, space suit. That Garel's in, yeah, yeah. And it, we were just talking about the the interesting, um, like almost X-ray kind of effect on that first panel, where you yep. see his face as he's escaping the uh, radiation of Krypton. Yep. And then at the bottom of the page, where you see the uh, Kryptonite that's pulled into a slipstream, rather yes. than fixing to the ship in the Man of Steel. But. Um, Going to the next page, of course, we are greeted with the hillside of 1768. <laughs> and uh, a big dichotomy there going from super futuristic to colonial uh, horse and carriage. Mm-hmm. But the detail on this, especially that, that second panel you see from inside the carriage. It, it is a... He, he did spend a lot of. It looks like he spent a lot of time on this. I mean, it definitely has all of the burn touches with the road and the plants and uh, the detail on the horses is great. Even the mane on the horse, the horses <laughs> look like they're actually in motion. So um, yeah, well, and you know, it's funny because there's been a lot of comments over the years that Burn can't draw horses. Have there? And okay. I don't. I don't see that. I did. I mean, the horses look pretty good to me. But uh, yeah. Now the um, the other thing is that you know you're talking about him spending a lot of time on these things. There's been a lot of discussion of late of uh, you know Burns' uh, turn, page turnout, and um, he said that uh, recently 
when he was really cranking along on on Elswin, uh, he was back up to his average of three pages a day. And it's just, it doesn't seem to matter how much detail is on the page, he can still crank out three pages a day. And that's the way it used to be, you know, back in the uh, the 80s when he was sitting there working on multiple books at one time. Because mm-hmm. a lot of times, especially when you're dealing with all the little ephemera around it, the details on the road, the dirt and the, and the bushes and all that, and if you've watched the videos of him drawing, it's always at that same breakneck speed. He's, you know, the, the image is already in his head. He's just, you know, getting it out of his hand onto the paper. And it just goes by so quick. You don't see other artists going as quick as this. That is just his normal, natural pace and way of doing things. There's no rushed, there's no slowdown. It's just getting it out of, out of the, the pen onto the page. Yeah, yeah, and very detailed uh, on the faces of the of the Edward, the Duke of Albion, and his wife, and um, and very and definitely very burned. If you were just to look at this, you would know that it was his artwork. <laughs> yeah. Now, how about this raving character? Uh, he looks. I mean, there are things about him that look really cool, and there's things about him that look comical. It, I mean, because it, it makes him it, it, with the with the riding pants and the the waistcoat and everything that he's got on, it makes him look rather f- fat in the midsection. Kind of kind of weird perspective when he's up on the horse. Am I am I misreading that? Uh, yeah, I don't. It does look like uh, it's not. It's not definitely not the sculpted. Yeah, uh, bodies we're used to uh, in modern superheroes, where the spandex shows off everything. So, um, it definitely he definitely does compensate for probably a little bit more what a person would really look like up there, whether he was in very good shape or not. Yeah, yeah, it's it's the perspective I think that makes it look like he's got giant hips. Yeah, and you know I've only noticed now uh, looking at it with you know as in depth as we are here. The, the dead guy on top of the carriage in the second panel. Oh, yeah, he is. Yeah. Oh, yeah, there's because, that bang on the Yeah, yeah, there's the a bang on the previous page, and I'd heard that, but I didn't know if that was just a stop-the-carriage kind of shot, you know, fire across the bow, so to speak. But no, he killed the driver. Huh. Or the driver's... Hang on, I'm blowing it up here. I'm thinking that the driver may simply be slumped over and holding his shoulder yeah he, he could be holding his shoulder or his neck got it that's well, nice nice detail there yeah and i mean yeah this guy definitely is is you know one of those regular robber barons but um I, again i'd never heard of the raven i do like the the outfit i think that someone could make real cool cosplay from that that would be a cool cosplay and yeah and i wonder kirk to your earlier comment i wonder if this isn't the the batman appearance just you know they just twisted him from the good uh, from hero to villain the vigilante aspect to now he's actually on the opposite side well hmm. turning to the next page in panel two um you got it's a pretty tight shot of two faces you only see enough of his hat that boy that sure looks like a peaked cowl to me it actually reminds me of if you've ever read the Untold Legend of the Batman, of his father's yeah. bat mask. 
Yes, yes, yes. So, that, so yeah. yeah, I think I think we did get it. It just wasn't very in our faces like normally things were in the 90s when it was, well, in order for a book to exist in DC, it's got to have Batman, Batman in it. Or I, if I you're in Marvel, it's got to have Wolverine. I just don't think that, the, I mean, really, I understand what you guys are saying, but I just don't think he would do that to, to Batman, turn him into a villain and a very inconsequential villain who, you know, within a few pages is probably going to be, yeah, I mean, he's pretty much done. Mm-hmm. But, uh, I, I mean, it, again, you know, it's a villain out there. And I, I get I get the feeling that this is a villain that if we did some some heavy research, we'd probably find him somewhere in other DC stories. John Byrne is, you know, one of those guys that, that seems to have a historian's... Uh, uh, I don't know what you want to call it, OCD about things like this. Like, you know, when we did the World War One Christmas story um, and we didn't know who the, the that guy, the flying ace of the skies, I didn't know who he was. And, and uh, so I initially thought it was the Red Baron. But no, I mean, he was actually a DC Comics character that had been around for quite some time. I was just unaware of him. And I kind of get the feeling this is probably one of those cases, too that this guy is somewhere in DC lore that just uh, hadn't figured out. Hey everybody, it's Brian here. I uh, just want to let you know, I uh, did a little bit of research on the Raven character and found that this is his only appearance anywhere within DC Comics. Um, that while um, Byrne did tie some other characters from the Superman mythos into this, the story legacy, uh, the Raven himself had nothing to do with any other character, not Raven from the Teen Titans or uh, Batman or anybody else. This was his only appearance, and, of course, the Warlock Royal dispatched with him with relish. And maybe a little mustard, I don't know. Anyway, back to the show. Yeah, possible. Yeah. Yeah. I like the bottom panel, how it's kind of... Uh, uh, the the colors are faded or not necessarily faded but not as sharp showing the light intensity uh, from the landing of the of the spaceship yeah, yeah the was, last panel it's it's yeah, like that, bleached out yeah I like that yeah I I do like that and then the next page that I mean I'm wondering if having this a digital reprint rather than a floppy uh, is hurting my perspective on this because this yellow and black is really unappealing <laughs> to me. But I, 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 I wonder if the yellow is just too bright of a yellow rather than what we would have gotten on the comic book page. Oh, I'm sure on the page it would have been very, very pale compared. Because this looks like someone mi- mixed up my eggs with Oreos. <laughs> and I don't eat eggs. So... <laughs> so- so is this supposed to be a wormhole opening up as the ship comes through, or that's that's what it appears to be because it's definitely that, all swirling fine. around that yeah. one spot. Yeah. But that ship comes in really, really hot. That that bottom panel is definitely uh, pushing that. Okay. Definitely, so <laughs> it's making a crater there. Yeah, it should not be intact in the next couple of panels. It should be crumpled. Mm. Well, it's not like the Kryptonian ship in the movie Superman. I, I again, you know, I think right. that 
it, 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 he could still be going on the idea that, uh, well, no, that that definitely isn't the case because when you see the Raven shoot at him with, with a, whatever gun that is, I don't know if it's a flintlock or whatever, but it does look like some pieces crack off of the spacesuit. Yeah. And then, of course, Not sure. Garel goes and grabs his hands, and he has a very General Zod kind of moment there. Yeah, I think that <laughs> that didn't go well for the Raven. <laughs> no. Do we see the Raven anymore? Is that the no, end of him? That's, or? that's it. He doesn't even show, did he kill him, or did he just leave him like that, or whatever. We don't know. I'll be. Yeah. I would have thought that Byrne would have picked that up and opened that in later, at least for a cameo or something. Well, look around for a guy missing his hands. We'll see. Uh, yeah. Because <laughs> there's a lot of background people in this that, that uh, you just don't think about. And, and we know that Jimmy Olsen's supposed to be in here. And not yeah, I think sure I spotted he, him. Yeah. He's coming up. This uh, this page, though, where, where Garel takes off the helmet and is talking to Sir Edward, or Edward, Duke of Albion, um... It, it it is very it reminiscent to me of next men. Um, in, in a lot of ways, when they're in the uh, the the garden, whatever you want to call it, the construct. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And of yep. course, you look at the the face there with the the of course no hair on it. That is the same face that we're accustomed to seeing on Superman. So definitely a very Kal-el kind of face, or cut from the same cloth. You put hair on that, and it's very much like the Superman mm-hmm. that we know. But, uh, of course, on the next page, we go into uh, London. And uh, that what is that George III, King of England, in that great hall? That's a, that's just... Uh, of course, I, he's doing this from photo referencing. But uh, definitely uh, some cool detail on that. And of course, the uh, Warlock Royal flies in. Yeah. <laughs> and the look on, on <laughs> King George's face there in that bottom left panel and the Cardinal. But the look on King George's face is almost like, oh man, I am screwed. <laughs> yeah, definitely. This is a weird transition, though, when you go from this to 1776. So, for, what, seven years, he's just in England, keeping the peace, as he says, maintaining, so to speak. Maintain order, yeah. Maintaining order, and it takes him seven years before he goes over. Now, maybe that's because he was not really truly aware that any kind of rebellion was even being thought about. Uh, there, you know, I, I don't know if he'd heard about the Boston Tea Party or what. But uh, that's interesting that it's seven years before he goes there. And, of course, looking at that bottom, those bottom panels when they, they're showing here in Philadelphia, and you see John Adams and Ben Franklin and uh, John Hancock, and I'm trying to figure out who the others are in there, you know, discussing all this. And the Franklin is pretty much spot on. John Adams, I, I, I'm... Um, I keep uh, conflating the image of John Adams with uh, that actor, the one who played Rhino in, in the Amazing Spider-Man, Paul uh, Paul Giamatti from the John Adams miniseries. 
which was really good if you haven't watched it. But the Warlock Royal shows up, and uh, golly, you know, the, the page where the Warlock Royal shows up in Philadelphia, the bottom left panel, just before he starts spinning, that just looks like his super, like burned Superman without the spit curl, doesn't it? Yeah, without the little curl. <laughs> uh, you're definite. And, of course, he does that quick Chris Reeve spin down one of my favorite scenes in Superman the movie. How is it that his clothes don't burn off? It's the aura. Remember the aura from uh, the burn reboot. I mean, but again, these aren't these are not skin tight clothes. So uh, they probably did get uh, hurt when he was doing all this. But you don't see him because he's either in shadow or far enough away that you can't actually see how his clothes got got messed up. So chances are, you know, all that came off, and the uh, the cloth that was holding his ponytail in place probably came, you know, came undone. And... <laughs> like when Wonder Woman used to do her spin on the TV series, and the <laughs> braid would fly out of her hair, and the please would don't fall remind down. me, <laughs> don't remind me. <laughs> That's great. And then of course he lifts up the entire building. Yeah. And, and we see it by the underside. And I, I really don't like seeing the underside of that building that basically all the floors are framed in wood uh, but then again I just don't know how that would work but again you know it's uh, that whole electrochemical aura that holds the building together as he's lifting it and flying it you know that's the psionic power of Superman that you know th- that Byrne touched on so much but other writers really seem to shun would it really affect something that large yeah absolutely as soon as he uh, touches it, the aura goes all around it. Was that his explanation? Yeah. It would, uh, I've got a simpler over. explanation. Okay. Much simpler. It's comics. Yes. Mm-hmm. But he was trying to provide explanations for these things. And, and when he did um, the Fantastic Four issue with Gladiator, Gladiator lifted the, the Baxter building up off of its foundation. And the whole building, he lifted it and angled it. The building should have crumbled under its own weight. And that, right. how big was the Baxter building? But mm-hmm. the aura that he you know uses, the, the aura that his body puts out, envelops whatever it is that he touches. And so, therefore, it holds the, the structural integrity together as a result. Yeah. And I, I uh, thought that was an ingenious way of, of doing that. So I, I've always been a big subscriber to that ability. Yeah, that, that makes sense to me. I just didn't realize it would go that. I thought it was just more closer contact um, when he explained it, but that makes sense, because yeah, otherwise <clears throat> those the entire building would have just collapsed. But again, as Kirk said, it's comics, so yeah. comics, I mean, they can you, always pick up a building. If you look in the movies, a real good example is in Superman the movie, when the helicopter comes off the building and is falling at Superman and Lois, he grabs it by the strut, just the, the, mm-hmm. the, the thing sticking out, that should have just broken right off the helicopter. Helicopter should have just kept on falling. But because of if we can we can explain that by saying that his aura prevented it from coming apart and held yeah. the, the structural integrity. Or that large chunk of ice that he picked up in Superman three. Yeah. Same thing. Well, or you could just I, say comics. <laughs> I, and when I was growing up I didn't even care about that kind of stuff. It was just like, oh, cool, you know, it's just carrying the building. So <laughs> I just yeah. kind of accepted in the comic book world that those particular laws of physics can just don't happen. 
That's all right. <laughs> on this next page, we see what happened to the Founding Fathers. Now, that's a pretty gruesome uh, image there. <laughs> yeah, very, very. Though, I mean, that's also a very unrealistic because they had the, the standard gallows there. Unless that whole, they just made the whole platform collapse rather than the floor collapse beneath them. Mm-hmm. Or that the, the the Warlock Royal did it himself. It just doesn't seem right. I do like the way they got it look like the legs are kicking. A couple of them, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm not happy with it. I'm just sitting there. I like the detail of it. <laughs> They're swinging. Yeah. Yeah. And then, of course, we jump to young Kalel being uh, taught about this. This is 211 years later. Now, that means so, that it's 1987 then, doesn't it? Yes. I wonder why so he maybe chose... he, maybe he wrote this in 1987, so it was perhaps meant for an earlier something? No, I think 1987 would have been the year that Superman revealed himself to the world, as far as, you know, the Man of Steel and all that. Um, or 86 would have been. Uh, and so, basically, it's that coming-of-age period for Kal-El. Okay. Is, is, is how I look at it. It's the only reason so why, why he would use that year. He's kind of keeping it in to his own continuity. Mm-hmm. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, and so you have this tutor, not of which I recognize from anywhere else. I don't think I've seen an analog of him in any other book or anything. You figured it's a kebab would, train. <laughs> yeah, you figured that they would throw in uh, 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 Professor Hamilton or somebody, you know, but no. Uh... And then um, going to the next page, it's, it's more of that. And then, of course, uh, his his uh, friend, the Lord of Salisbury, Derek, comes in. It's funny because in the middle panel there, as the Lord of Salisbury has come in, the tutor now looks like Aunt May because of the yes. angle he's got him at with the glasses hanging off the nose and the ponytail hit, held by the bow. Looks like Aunt May. He, real quick, before, uh, did you notice the uh, in the final panel his comments there is like, sometimes in my deepest dreams I seem to see a world yeah. like ours, yet different. <laughs> yeah, and and that's you know just alluding to the whole Elseworlds. I, I thought that was kind of hamfisted and <laughs> and putting that in there. You know, I mean, I could see you know that 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 he's alluding to this world, you know, the, or the comic world, um, but. I didn't think it was necessary to throw that in there. Maybe see a world that's free, but instead of different. Mm-hmm. But that's just me. I could be wrong. Yeah. Now, as we get into this other page, the one where I saw MA, the, the one thing I do find interesting, now, what we know of is that a lot of uh, forward progress had stopped. Apparently fashions didn't change in 211 years and everybody's still wearing colonial garb and talking colonial ways. But they did were able to build electric uh, not electric, but uh, motorized vehicles. And apparently they've got the dinky die-cast Superman van driving around. Mm-hmm. <laughs> on that bottom left hand, bottom bottom panel. Does it, did you ever see the dinky die-cast Supervan? Never. It would have come out in the 70s, I think, is, is when it came out. I mean, there, there was also the Superman's uh, spaceship uh, came out around the same time and had two extending arms that would come out. Unless that was a superpowers toy that came later. I could be, I could be wrong about that. 
but that's what that makes me think of. But the, the, the thing I do like is how they maintain, especially with Kal-El there, the Superman colors. You see the red and the mm-hmm. blue, though there's no yellow on them. But uh, it's, it's kind of, you know, dressing them in that same way they dressed uh, Tom Welling in Smallville. Always trying to make sure to, to make use of those primary colors. Mm. Now, the panel with when Derek comes into the room reminds me, uh, for some reason, it just reminds me of... Um, Logan's Run, where uh, uh, they they get together to go chase down a, a runner uh, from mm-hmm. Cathedral. Logan and and his and uh, oh gosh, I forgot I forgot his friend's name. <laughs> Just escaped me for a minute. But yeah, it's like hey, there's sport to be had. Let's go. Uh, so yeah. it's been at least twenty years since I watched Logan's Run. Though I did go to the <laughs> Water Gardens last year to reenact it. Um, oh, did you? <laughs> Well, come on, they're like 10 minutes away from me. I can drive down there pretty much any time. But, uh, yeah, so did, so did you uh, come up over the steps and and touch an old man's face and say, oh, can I touch the cracks on your face? Because I've never <laughs> seen an old man before. <laughs> no, 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 but I did look for Jenny again, or she wasn't there. I was upset. Oh. <laughs> Are you yeah. saying that was shot near you? The scene What's where they, they dive into the water to get down into the back into... Um, what you call it? Uh, that was the, shot at the, the Dome Gardens. City. Yeah, that was shot at the Fort Worth Water Gardens, which is downtown. Oh, Fort Worth. And uh, it's, it's a pretty historical site, and of course, it's uh, also a park. So there's a, a lot of really cool stuff around there. It's a very unusual architecture, which is why they used it. And that was also the end scene was filmed there. Yeah, but they, of course, did the uh, big backdrop uh, painting. What do you order? Whatever you call that for the uh, mat shot. Yeah, the matte shot for all that uh, dilapidated background. I mean, they right. could have used regular Fort Worth back then because it looked just as bad. But no. <laughs> and the uh, welcome to Logan's Runcast. But um, the the, <laughs> the 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 where most of the <clears throat> where most of the action took place was in a mall in Dallas, wasn't it, or Fort Worth? And it's gone now, from what I understand. Uh, yeah, I wasn't it? A, I think it was a my my friend. I had a friend, a Navy friend, who is from uh, Fort Worth, uh, at Plano, outside of that area, and he said that it was filmed in a mall right before they opened the mall. So it was a brand new mall, and that's where they got the area where Cathedral was and where they would do a lot of the scenes of that would have the to running, be either Valley View people. or um, or the Galleria, and Valley View is gone now, I, but the Galleria is still out there. It's just, yeah. And I, I think he said that they had torn down the mall since, but um, yeah. Hmm. Anyway, back to Superman elsewhere. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now again, we're talking about the the changes in in the timeline now. Of course, whereas this again is supposed to be nineteen eighty six, eighty seven, and while they do have motorized vehicles, everything else seems to be held to an older standard. The the roads are not paved; they look like dirt roads and such. And uh, all the architecture and all the clothing is still colonial style. Mm-hmm. But I guess. Well, there are electric lights. If you look on the next page in the mm-hmm. in the room there, there's electric lights up there. So yeah. apparently, uh, Gar L really liked the style and thought it was best to kind of keep everyone in that style. Yeah, well, and they've got a printing press there too, and that's what they wind up destroying. It's definitely a mechanical printing press. But you can see old analog typewriters, like a Smith Corona right there on one of the desks. 
Yeah. <laughs> uh, used a couple of them. And, I mean, I have one when I was a kid, and I had a battered Underwood typewriter that uh, they used for, they, they used that term for the movie San Almost Fire, for the six people that saw it, you know, that movie. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, this, of course, is where we see Perry White, or Peregrine White, um, and we see a woman with red hair in a pink dress that I don't recognize her at all. That might be Lana Lana Lang. I mean, it, it's possible it could be, but again, Lana's hair was more of an orange red rather than what that is. That's more of a strawberry. Mm. Um, but uh, And then, of course, Lois comes out, and she's got that very dark blood red hair and um, outfit. And, of course, with the... Uh, the uh, way that the outfit is done, he actually gives her some sizable cleavage. But it looks like she had a duct tape job done there. It really is a nice image of her. I mean, I, I like that he took so much of the page up just to, and shows her defiance. And that really defines Lois as her defiance and her... Mm-hmm. Uh, commitment to what she's doing but she's, her fingers <laughs> look so bizarre in that bottom right panel where she's talking it's to a scarlet witch <laughs> oh yeah she's I gesturing to yeah but um and then of course the next page where she gives the guy a full knee in the groin and the look on his face <laughs> That's awesome. Now, I actually had some confusion when I was looking at this the night before because I was trying to tell who was the guy that actually hit Perry in the face with the butt. At first, I was sitting there going, is that Kal-? And then I realized, no, that can't be Kal-El. The hair's a different color of dark where Kal-El's got the blue, blue high- highlights. Yeah. And then a couple panels later, I see Kal-El in his you know, traditional garb rather than what they're wearing because those are all soldiers or mm-hmm. guardsmen. And, um, you know, of course, he stops his friend from doing anything to Lois. But uh, that actually costs Perry because they uh, arrest Perry and and, uh, sentence him to 40 licks of the cat. Yeah. And then there's Jimmy down there on the bottom page behind Derek. Yeah, Yeah, you're right. You're right. There he is. And, And some very bald guy that. It's an editor. Yep. I don't, I just don't know if he's supposed to be somebody that we know. But, yeah. yeah. And that, that Jimmy, he's like a cross between the Jimmy from the comics and Mark McClure. Hmm. The, the face yeah. reminds me of Mark McClure quite a bit. I, I can almost hear his, you jerk, you broke my camera. <laughs> <laughs> but the look of Perry on the next page uh, when he's killed, that just, uh I think That's to... Um, great- the movie Starship Troopers when they're uh, whipping Johnny Rico. And Johnny only got ten lashes. Yeah, that was pretty bad. And Derek th- does look positively pleased. Uh, the, the facial expressions, that um, yeah. he, he really took a lot of time to put the details in these. And Lois's face in the more, uh, on the bottom definitely has those, you know, she's she's mad and sad at the same time. And, you know, in her head, she's vowing revenge. Yeah, and that is an amazing-looking punch. Because you just see the fist, you see the, 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 the sign of the impact, and 
what looks like a tooth coming out. But, I mean, you can just, in the rage on her face. Wow, that's that's amazing. But you can you can feel that. That's got a, a tactile sensation to it. You know, you can almost feel the punch. Mm-hmm. And you can see she stepped into it. She planted her right foot and really stepped into it. That was a full right cross. Dang. Good follow through, too. My dad was a boxer. Uh, in his younger days. But, um, I mean, Kal-El, of course, he's uh, definitely, you see that he is taking all of this really, really hard. He's seeing the folly of his great-great-grandfather's ways. And if you look on that bottom right-hand panel, you see the painting up on the wall? I mean, it's a huge, huge painting, like 20 feet tall. Yes. And it's got the very, very bright Superman colors on it with the cape. Yeah, cape. Yep. Absolutely. That's, that's the first, I think, and only time we really see that type of costume. It still looks to have some sort of colonial-type gloves on it. But I'm wondering if that's one of the sons, or the son of uh, Gar-El. Because as I understand it from the book, Gar-El had one son, and having that son killed the mother... And then that one had another had one one son, and that killed that mother. And then finally, beyond that, they, the bloodline was diluted enough it didn't kill the mothers. But I'm wondering why Garel didn't have more than just one child of his own, and only went on for grandchildren, unless there was some Kryptonian tradition that he stuck with. Yeah, that that was kind of interesting too. I'm not sure. Unless Kirk? he was worried about his sons, you know, attacking him. Uh, you see the Superman S, the shield above the door in that same panel. Yeah. It sneaks in, in several places. That brings up a question. If the S is supposed to be the symbol for hope, and that, yet it seems to be used as a symbol of oppression here. No, I mean, S, as far as this continuity is concerned, S is the, the symbol for the House of L, much like it was in Superman the movie. Um, when you see the Kryptonian symbols throughout John Byrne's run, uh, it comes up, the, the, the shape of the symbol, not necessarily the S on the inside, but the shape of the symbol does come up in a lot of places from here, you know, here and there. Um, in this case, though, he uses it, um, and again, I don't know, you know, he's using it much like it was used in the movies, where it is the symbol of the House of L. It was um, Zack Snyder's uh, vision where it became a symbol for hope. And if you watch the TV series Krypton, which is on sci-fi, uh, you can, uh, it's on the DC app right now, you can watch the entire series there it's you know definitely supposed to be a symbol of hope but it wasn't realized as that back then interesting hmm. and then the next page as Kylo comes to see his great great grandfather you see that his hair is long uh, but he definitely appears to be as powerful as ever you know he's aged but he's not old um, makes me think of Metallo from Superman issue one. He just pulled his hair hmm. back into a ponytail. He looked like Metallo. And I was thinking this is reminds me of the Superman at the end of Generations. Well, yeah, that too, which would be about five, six years, done five, six years after this. 
So I, you know, maybe this inspired that. I just can't stand ponytails and or or, <laughs> or, or, or mullets, you know. Well, at least we don't have a mullet in this story. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. We don't have Superman red and blue with uh, mullets. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but and- like you mentioned earlier, you know, some good dialogue here. Some. I mean, when you talked about how John Byrne seemed to have a lot, a lot more of the dialogue, I mean, this was some interesting stuff in the way that he positions the, the panels so that uh, you get different perspectives. Uh, it really emphasizes what he's saying. Yeah, and it definitely you know emphasizes the perspective between the two. Um, the Gar-El, of course, is supremely confident that his way is you know always going to to be the win and that's just because he's simply the most powerful he doesn't have to win an argument and I mean you can see here that it's over uh, it's a year later before we see any of whatever Kalel's doing come to any kind of fruition now the funny thing I find at the top of the page you know it tells us this is a year later but it's at the pig and whistle a pub we have a, a pig and whistle pub right here in Fort Worth that I used to frequent a lot in my younger years. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> so, Is it a chain? Uh, no. <laughs> no. Uh, just a locally owned place. I don't know if it's still around. But now we I have hate. Like, the, the Hare and the Hound and a couple other places. Hare and the Hound's cool because it lets you bring your dog. Well, you never know, Brian. Maybe maybe the pig and the whistle is like one of those Guinness pubs where uh, they just kind of package everything up in Ireland and ship it to America uh, for a franchise that someone can open up an Irish pub locally. Mm. I tried my first Glenorangy <laughs> at the pig and whistle, thanks to Golston Dart. Aren't they all closed down, or have you guys opened up in Texas? Uh, Friday night, last Friday night was when they told the bars they could go ahead and open up. Thursday, actually, Friday is when they're supposed to open up. So Thursday night at midnight, the bars <laughs> open their doors. But I don't know how the business is going. I have a buddy, Chris Harville, who runs a place, Woody's Tavern, uh, here. And um, I definitely would like to go visit him, but I'm just not ready to do that myself. Not ready to get out there like that. It's just, uh, I you know, they're too many people in my household that uh, are immunocompromised, so i you know got to be much more careful than others, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, this this was a year later, so, I mean, he's taking his time doing that. I find this page, though, to be uh, evocative, at least with the like the red-haired woman, of, of almost like Frank Miller art. Um, I mean, it looks like Frank Miller and Klaus Jensen took a pass at her hair and face. You know, like from from the the Dark Knight or Ronan. Mm-hmm. And it's just her. Everything else still looks like Burn. But um, these pages here seem to—I don't know—they seem to be more of a shorthand of art rather than his more, more detailed art. The, the previous page in this page. Yeah. Yeah, this page definitely seems like it's just probably one and i don't know maybe he really puts a lot of emphasis on some pages and then others he's like well i'll just get the story across um mm-hmm. they'll still be my work but i'm just not going to focus a lot on them so a little further away shots not nothing that's going to require a lot of detail right it uh, makes you wonder how much 
pencils he actually used on a page like this. If it was just a complete, very rough, rough breakdown of the panels, and then he did everything else in ink. Yeah. Mm. And, but I love this next page. It's it's a silent page, and of course it's Kal-El walking out into the night, uh, very dark, uh, dark colors of purple, and, and was that fuchsia? But mm-hmm. um, and, and grays and such, and you see everybody's in silhouette, and Kalo gets taken down by several guys with clubs. You don't know if they clubbed him or whatever, but uh, they do take him. And then the next page shows him, and it's all in black on the next page when uh, they've got him tied up in a chair. They're all wearing masks, and they splash him with water, threaten to cut his throat, and he just tells them, I'm looking for the man called L. And that's when uh, Lois once again reveals herself. And apparently she is uh, running these guys. But they allow him to have his say, and he basically tells them, you know, he's got a conscience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I like it. You, the girl from the planet. <laughs> and you, the princeling who fancies himself a protector of a maiden's honor. Yeah, she's she remembers. She's like, ah, uh, yeah. What do you think of the this artwork with the? I mean, doing the coloring they did, everything in the backgrounds in purple and blue, and all the foreground stuff because the lantern is all yellow or yellow and black. I'm not quite a fan of it. I think it should be like diminishing returns on the the shading of it to show that you're only getting it if you're in the in the in the light of the lantern. And I don't know if that was a colorist mistake or if, if Burns should have done something more with the inking to, to show that, done more shading. Yeah, and, and I'm not sure how they, when they choose those things, especially if he's just trying to make, maybe he's just trying to make different stylistic choices, like from the two pages ago, the when he leaves the inn or the pub, mm-hmm. you know, that's a very different style of, of artwork, kind of like the all-white issue of Alpha Flight, you know, mm-hmm. telling the story through that or the silent stuff. And then here with just no backgrounds on the next page, but fully colored. And then here, I think I think he's probably just going for different effects. Yeah, but I'll tell you right the, now, fix it up a bit. the silhouette page is my favorite page in the entire book. I mean, simply because it, the simplicity of it what you know it tells a good story right there and uh the 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 colors that they use are nicely muted to makes it you know almost quiet you know um the black page of course also was was rather interesting but it makes you wonder how Kahlo would be lit like he is and then this this last page that's you know that's in basically purple and yellow is I don't know, it's kind of disconcerting. And then, of course, I look at the guys in the bottom left corner, and I'm wondering, when's Destro going to walk in? Oh. I was thinking of the executioner. <laughs> Remember when, when uh, in was it Man of Steel or afterwards, when uh, Superman yes. wore the hood to kill a Kryptonian general, Zod, whatever? Didn't he wear these? Um, I remember that, like, in, in Superman, the movie, they sent... Some sort of, sort of Kryptonian cop after them. 
in the longer, if you watch like the K-Cop or the super extended version that you can buy on Amazon now, you know, they show him heading towards the L family chambers, but the explosion of Krypton kind of messed that up for him. Made you wonder what, what this guy was going to do. He's kind of like the Boba Fett of Superman. Um, but I don't recall ever seeing it after that. Where else did you see Did you see that? The master? I'm thinking that it was Superman 20 or something. It was, oh, the uh, cover of Superman 22, he, they show him wearing... Isn't that right? On the cover? Yeah. Yeah. He, he uh, I executioner. Yeah, yeah, that's right. But he, that was he, quite a shock when Burn uh, when Burn did that. But you know, I like. In hindsight, I like it. You know, back then when again I didn't read any trade magazines. I didn't you know pay attention to how the sausage was being made. I knew that you know, of course, uh, you know, John Byrne had his reputations back then. You know, of course, how he left the X Men and whatnot, but. I didn't think anything of that stuff. But when I read this issue and I heard that Byrne left the book, I thought he was just like, I'm going to screw him. I'm going to paint him into a corner and uh, with this. Because I just didn't think Superman should kill. And I was so against that for a long time. But years later, you know, I look back at the story and I think it's brilliant. Who um, took over after? Wasn't it Stern who replaced Yeah, Roger who replaced Stern him? and Kerry Gamble. Well, there you go. If he handed it over to Stern, he knew it was in good hands. He knew yeah. that Stern would would do something logical that wouldn't contradict his direction. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. Roger Stern took over, and I think the first issue was actually Mike Mignola, and then after that, Kerry Gamble came in with John Beatty and and uh, did the art chores. But Kerry Gamble is not while well, he's a good artist, he's not a fast artist. He actually lives like a few miles away from me, which is in, you know neat, but. Uh, sadly, his comic book collection got destroyed, or most of it got ruined by some sort of weird uh, thing that was going on in his house. I don't know if it was like a weird infestation or mold or whatever, but uh, it, it was really sad. I remember reading about that in the news. Well, I'm all over today. I just had a Mountain Dew. All right. Back <laughs> to this. Sorry, we're taking you down the rabbit hole. Yes, we are. Going past the page of the, of the purple and yellow... Um, of course, you know, these are the discussions with Lois where they're talking about she's, she doesn't necessarily trust that, that he is fighting for their best interest. And uh, he takes her down to the vault where the kryptonite is stored. And you can see that that vault's got very modern, uh, modern looking accoutrements or maybe even Kryptonian accoutrements. And that to open it, he says the Kryptonian word for open. How do you know that? Um, it's on the next page. You know, she goes, "What was that?" And he goes, "The Kryptonian word for open." My father taught me Kryptonian, as did his father before. Got it. Yeah. Uh, and so you see inside this vault, a uh, lead chamber or lead, whatever you want to call that repository that actually has the kryptonite in it. And then she hands him a gun that's it looks like a flintlock, but with a clip. <laughs> or something. It's a very uh, you, you'd expect to see a gun like that in Blade Runner, almost. Mm-hmm. That's a cool looking gun. And she hands in that gun, and he does the same thing that Byrne has people do whenever they, somebody, they get a gun. They hold it straight up in the air, on one side or the other of their face, and then aim and fire. Which I, it's, it seems to be something that, that he did a lot with characters whenever they were handed a gun. 
I seem to have an image in my head of Batman doing something like that, but I can't remember from where. And then he opens up the the kryptonite vault, and uh, it doesn't hurt him at all. And that's where he accepts that his 10th generation blood uh, is too human to be affected by it. That's a pretty interesting scene down there, too, in the green glow. Uh, his determination on the on his face is just like, well, I'm bracing for whatever to, ha- to hit me. Yeah. And it definitely well, proves to her that, that he is willing to give his life for this cause. Well, the other thing is, if he was affected, he could drop the lid. Okay, so on the next page, you know, she finally says, you know, as, as they show everybody else the rock... And she says, if you want you know, to go meet El, go through the next door. And he goes in there, and she finally reveals that she herself is L. Did this surprise either of you when you read it? Uh, not really. I kind of figured it was her when they when he put her when he first showed her in the the red dress. I was like, oh, that must be L. Lois. Um, I was wondering if Lex Luthor was going to be a part of it or something, but and yeah, um, and that was what I was expecting all along. I was, I was like, is it going to be Lex Luthor? Or are they going to really throw a weird one and make it Lana Lang or Laurie Lamaris or you know? You could, I mean, Burn <laughs> has got that definite flair on the Superman history, so it could have been any of them. I always yeah. thought it was kind of weird, you know. Superman's love life was filled with LLs, and then Lex Luthor was also someone that was big in his life. And okay. not that there's anything wrong with that Johnny tell me was that stupid no (laughs) okay sometimes it just sets up in comic history you connect the dots and it's all there it's all been laid out sometimes by intent and sometimes accident just by accident you know there's been what two different animated movies on the death of Superman did you watch the first one I've not seen either I'm asking John specifically, though. Uh, No, I don't think I saw the first one. Because the first one had some very unusual segments in it. Um, Lex Luthor, after Superman had died, he cloned um, a a Superman successfully. And he would frequently put him in a red crypto, not a red crypto, but a red sun chamber. So he wouldn't have any powers, and Lex would... um, bare shirt wrestle him to the ground and dominate him and show him that he was better. And this is in, in an animated movie. It's one of the weirder animated movies I watched because they, they did a lot of stuff that I would not figure they would do in a movie for little children. They had scenes of Superman and Lois walking around in bathrobes after, you know, after. Coitus. Uh, yeah. And uh, it was just, uh, you know, a different one of those things, but definitely worth a watch. Uh, yeah, if, if you're familiar with those. I'll, I'll see if I can find that one and I'll, I'll point, point, point it to you see what your thoughts on it are because it was, it was really odd the, mm-hmm. way, the, the, the things that they intimated onto Lex that, that, that his things towards his feelings towards Superman were more than just you know this uh, you know reviling of the alien that uh, had usurped his power yeah but now we come back to the uh, uh, the story on this next page. We actually get to see 
the uh, the palace. And I don't know if that's in London or if that's in United States or what. It looks like it'd probably be London based on the the building structures around it. And you see, of course, the huge, huge House of El symbol up there at the top of the Golden Tower. And so it kind of looks like Lang. Oh well, that. Yeah. I, I don't think that's Lana. That's, I think it's just an obligatory female for him to have his way with. Okay. I figure he probably goes through a few every now and then. I'm not going to go there, but uh, yeah. you talk about how the women can't uh, can't survive this. So well, let's just move on. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so you know, of course, he comes in, he locks the door or, or bars the door. And uh, Garl basically tells him to give him four minutes. That's the amount of time it took for his father to die at the end of a rope. Talking about Jor-El. Yeah. And Clark, of course, spends, uh, Kello, excuse me, spends his time talking about what's wrong with the world. And what's wrong with the world because of Garl and his interference there. He asks, is this the legacy of Krypton, the legacy of the family L? And it's at that point, though that uh, the guards shoot through the window, striking Kal-El in the face in a full uh, full uh, splash page um, shot. It's very With literal splash. Yeah, definitely. Real gore. Real gore. (laughs) So why could those soldiers not have run up to the window and shattered the window to come in? Well, they don't know what Kal-El's got in there. Does he have any weapons on him? If they smash through the window, is he just going to shoot them and kill them? But the warlock is impervious to any weapon. He's yeah. It's, I, again, it's you know, it's it's why fear for this man? Again, they don't know if Kyle L's got any power at all or not. Right. I'm, right. So I, I mean, there's a lot of questions in that. Someone basically locked themselves in with Gar L, and their their responsibility is supposed to be to act with certain measures and that's what they're doing right that doesn't make Garl happy because uh, on the next page as soon as they get through the door he vaporizes them all or turns them into mm-hmm. pot of ashes mm. and then of course we see Kal-El has enough wherewithal to say grandfather before he actually dies that's an amazing expression on the face you can see that kind of a shock and are you going to help me kind of thing? It makes me think of that last scene in Godfather 3. The best scene when they actually kill Sofia Coppola. Uh, <laughs> sorry. I was not a fan of that performance. Uh, but, um, you know, at that point, that seems to be the turn of the tide. But what I really don't like about this next page is the helmets on the soldiers or the guards. <laughs> yeah, it's the shape of them, and then having that Superman symbol on them—it's just weird. The statue in the back, though, I'd never noticed that before. It was really cool. And I don't know if that's Gar El or one of his sons, but it looks like it's caped, you know, in, in a different type of cape though than what we're accustomed to seeing. Mm-hmm. Where? Where uh, are you? On the top of the page, where Gar El is holding the body of Kyle. Oh, okay, I got it. I got it. Yeah. You see that statue in the back. It almost has a, a Tom McFarlane look to it, too. A little bit the statue. And the hair and face. But that's mm-hmm. just from the size of the image. And uh, the 
<laughs> the look on the one guy's face there who says, we, we acted as we felt best. You can tell he's like looking at the pile of ash in front of him and thinking, oh, my gosh, we're next. <laughs> yeah. Please, please. <laughs> but, yeah. And uh, take course- this foolish boy. Um, I think I think you actually felt some sadness there, uh, even though he's a pretty grim monarch. But I think he actually probably regretted that the that Kalel was dead. I think Kalel's argument was getting to him. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, especially after the events that are coming up right here, where they unveil the kryptonite, and he sees he could have used that on them at any time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and you know, of course, once that weakness is revealed, of course, he's like, oh my gosh, you know, the cat's out of the bag. He, he realizes, though, he used it. He, he, he didn't use it. He could have. But he gets them all out of there, and it's, you know, here where he just comes to his conclusion. He has no further place on this planet. Yeah. It was now, a nice little I do have a problem, though, with this... Okay, the four-panel page where he goes out on the balcony and then flies off into space with Kal-El's yeah. body. Yeah. It says, The time has come to put an end to such things. For you, grandson, a burial worthy of the last son of Krypton, at the heart of the blazing sun of this world. But he's flying directly away from the sun. Well, that's the Superman sunrise over, <laughs> the, uh, yeah, I, over the edge. I mean, I know, it's he's evoking that. It is so. Is, is, is it his? Is it the warlock's intention to deposit Kal-el's body into the sun, or is the warlock going into the sun with him? Is it suicide? No, he is going to to deposit him in the sun. And for me, the boundless realms of space to search for some small hope of a greater happiness. That's what he says. Okay. So he expects to survive. And then on the next page, it looks like it's Jimmy Olsen that runs in. It says. Where's Lois? Did you hear the news? I believe that's Jimmy. Yeah, I think you're right. And of course, you know, people are so happy. There's a guy already up on the table cheering. Yeah. The sovereign is gone. Yeah. The world is ours. And Lois, of course, has that sobering moment where she tells everybody what what all this really means about freedom and liberty, and how to make a great future. And then he closes the story with a uh, quote from Albert Camus from Resistance, Rebellion, and Death, book published in 1960. Freedom is nothing else but a chance to be better. Enslavement is a certainty of the worse. Now, I, I got familiar with Byrne in the late 80s and in the early 90s, throwing in a lot of quotes here and there. Um, and, and I never found them to evoke anything towards me you know they didn't affect my enjoyment or you know whatever of the story you know in a pocket positive or negative um what did you guys think well it's a bittersweet uh, story i mean it's it's a sad um sad morality tale if you will mm-hmm. so it has to end on somewhat of a downbeat but on the other hand having it end with a note of hope. I mean, this is this is sort of a revolutionary war, a Fourth of July story, where they, uh, you know, the 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 patriots, uh, so to speak, win or they have their shot now, delayed by a couple of hundred years. So, 
I don't, I don't mind that it ends on a note of hope. I mean, uh, you almost expect that. You've already had the tragedy, so I think it works. Yeah, I do too, and I, I like the, uh, well, one of my favorite alternate universe uh, series was, of course, the original What If by uh, from Marvel, and so Elseworlds is always... Uh, I've always enjoyed well-done Elseworlds stories like JLA the Nail and this one and uh, a couple of others that just kind of explored something really different, but then kind of wrapped it up to bringing us back to the point where uh, we kind of get like the honor of L restored. I mean, or, you know, I mean, the, the, kind of bring it back to what we know of our characters and so like in this story uh kal-el was still the character of hope even though uh that didn't come you know it, it still maintained the character of kal-el and they brought in a whole different character that we've never heard of gar-el to be essentially the bad guy <laughs> the bad seed they didn't make it jor-el or any of the other people so i like how in this story uh Jumper and kind of kept the basics of who Clark Kent was and who Kal-El is that um, you know he was going to fight for the people even if it meant going against his his grandfather or his family's heritage yeah but you know it, it, it kind of makes sense in a way you know Gar-El coming to Earth after Krypton explodes Krypton a, 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 a lesson itself in certain you know the follies of their ways and as he comes to earth and he's sitting there because he, he there's a lot of exposition in there that talks about how he studied earth culture before he got there learned the languages and such and so he looked at at england as probably the the pinnacle of advancement and that their way of ruling is probably the way to go at that time, yeah. Yeah, because at, at that time, the United States wasn't really anything more than just British colonies. So, yeah, again, you, you, you wonder, you know, looking at it from that perspective, he sees that as what to maintain. Now, of course, he falls into the trap of, of, of not letting progress happen. And, uh, you know, it, it holds the world back in a lot of different ways. Obviously, there's some technology that works, but they never appear to, to develop like a computerized technology of any type uh, at least not at this point it'll be interesting to see it would be interesting to see you know any follow up story to this to see what actually does happen and were there any other sons of El that survived or did they all just age and die you know did, did Garl's others other you know son and grandson did any of them have an extended life Lifeline, or, or you know, anything like it. it raises a lot of questions, but mm -hmm. um, it seems that there's logic in the fact that they probably all did age and die. Maybe they lived a little longer, but this was 200 years later, so the likelihood that they would all die before Jor-El himself was uh, 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 executed seems logical. Hmm. Yeah, interesting. It was a good story. I liked it as a kind of a done in and of itself and then it kind of moves on and then it's, it is uh, the artwork is fantastic uh, it's great great to see 
his yeah. style again, his full style, and and uh, he did a very great job with everything. Yeah, good story. I enjoyed this one. Nice choice for Memorial Day. Mm-hmm. I thought so. I thought so. All right. Well, um, again, we're going to keep trying to put a show out every week uh, as you know we continue on through all this. Obviously, lockdowns being lifted in a lot of areas, but uh, a lot of us trying to be careful are probably not going to be going out. And uh, I completely understand. I'm going to practice that myself. Again, you know, I work from home as it is, so nothing's really changed a whole lot for me. My son's going stir crazy, and you know I, I do what I can to help him out there. But uh, we're, um, you know, we're doing all right that uh, here. But I know a lot of people out there are having some troubles, some difficulties, and they need something to to listen to, to just give them a, a feeling of normalcy or normality, whichever way you want to go with the word. Um, that being said, we'd like to know what you thought about this episode. So please write us. Whether you uh, write us into uh, any of the Facebook posts that you see this episode on, or you can write us at our Gmail address, that's gottagetburned at gmail.com, or you can uh, put a review for us on iTunes, or otherwise known as Apple Podcasts. We'd like to hear from you. We'd really like to hear from you. I did put a call out this week asking that anybody that wanted to suggest the material for an upcoming show, if you'd simply write us, at our uh, email address, uh, we'll be glad to sit there, take all those, and come up with a, a plan on which ones we can cover coming up. And we'll be sure to read any re- you know response that we got at our email address online during the next you know one of the upcoming episodes. So please let us know what you'd like to see. But uh, we're going to bang our heads together here and try to figure out what we're going to do next week. Now, do you guys have any thoughts or ideas? Well, Babe was one, but I'm not sure where my copies are. You'd have to probably find a copy and try to share it. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't think I've got any digital copies of Babe. Um, I know that you can buy each issue on Amazon for like a dollar ninety nine. A digital. Well, copy. maybe I'd be willing to buy one to try that out. Maybe the first issue, if you wanted, that would set the story up. Um, I remember some of it, but uh, having it right in front of me. Um, I believe there's also a, a, a backup story in each of the books, The Sentinel of Liberty or something along those lines. Um, yeah, yeah, and I can't remember where that leads to, but you're right. I think you'll be surprised because it's sort of Jimmy Olsen meets uh, She-Hulk. Hmm. Sort of. Any, are there any burn stories that deal with the transition to summer? Or swimming. What? Or pandemics. <laughs> um, <laughs> critical error. Uh, that's p- pushing it, but, you know. Yeah, critical error, that's one of those ones I don't know. I, I mean, we'd have to do a special special type of episode for that one. Uh, because, of course, there's two versions of that out there. The one in the, 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 the art of John Byrne, and then the uh, published one that got yeah. put out years later that was edited. Well, and we can talk about that. Um, and definitely would want Tim to be a part of that. Tim was the one that showed that to me for the first time a couple of years back. Uh, Is Tim likely to be back next week? More than likely, I would say yes. I think today being part of Memorial Day weekend, he's just got things that he has to deal with, uh, family Yeah, family issues. Yeah, well, sure. You want to try that? We could try it. 
we yeah let's we, we we shall discuss that and see if that's the way we want to go uh it sounds sounds like the best way to go though yeah john you got any thoughts any last things to bring up before we uh, drop off here no that sounds fun i haven't i have never read bay but i don't even know about it so it'd be something interesting to go into uh oh you're talking about critical error yeah yeah well, critical I error mean, would be great too I mean, again, yeah, Babe would be the, the natural selection for next week. Critical Error, I think, like I said, we want to cover that sometime down the road, but I think it would have to be a special show. Okay. Uh, and it, we, could, we could actually allow – well, I don't, I don't know we would have to worry about that. But, I, I mean, again, I think it would be a special episode, and, and I don't think that we want to just limit it to, like, the, the four of us. We might, might want to get some other people's input on that. That's something that's been around for a long time. But it's also been kind of at the fringes of, of everybody's knowledge of John Byrne's work. And yeah. um, I, again, it's one of the first works that uh, of his that was published that you know had true nudity in it. Uh, you know, and, and, and of course the sexual uh, aspects of it, um, and of course what the editing did to it in in the, the later publications of it uh, would be an interesting discussion, but it'd probably go on for quite a while. <laughs> what? We we talk a lot. <laughs> Just a little bit. Well, it's been more than two hours now, folks. Yeah, so we're going to go ahead and wrap up now. Uh, like I said, please write us. Let us know what you're thinking. Uh, we've been uh, seeing that there are a lot more people listening to the show than uh, than in previous months, and that makes us feel really good. Um, but uh, we'll be back next week. So uh, just uh, have fun, take care, be careful. For Third Degree Burn, I'm Brian Hughes. I'm John Hyatt. And I'm Kirk Greenfield. Take care. Have fun. Thanks for listening. You can find us and many other great shows at tutufreaks.com. That's T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S.com. Third Degree Burn is spelled with the number three, R-D-D-E-G-R-E-E-B-Y-R-N-E, and is part of the Two Two Freaks network of shows. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Just look for Third Degree Burn, spelled with the number three, and Burn spelled B-Y-R-N-E. Compliments, complaints, and recipes can be sent to gottagetburned at gmail.com. That's G-O-T-T-A-G-E-T-B-Y-R-N-E-D at gmail.com. Drop us a line and tell us how we're doing. If you're interested in any of the books we cover in the show, just head over to 22freaks.com and use the Amazon link to shop. This doesn't cost any extra, but it really helps support the shows. Till next time, this has been Third Degree Burn. All right, I'll be mayor.